0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. While in her 20s and 30s, Cape Cod native Krista Worthington built a successful career in fashion journalism. She rubbed elbows with elite designers, wrote editorials for widely respected publications like Cosmopolitan and cycled through high-fashion cities like Paris and London. Still, she felt a gnawing desire, a profound absence in her life that could not be satisfied by any career advancement. As she turned 40, Krista realized she wanted to be a mother, and if she didn't act fast, the opportunity would pass her by. Krista was a go-getter in her professional life, and she put that same energy into having a child. When her daughter Ava was born, it was as amazing as she envisioned, but sometimes life has other plans. In a cruel twist of fate, Krista's joy was abruptly cut short. The events that unfolded on January 4th of 2002 would rip away the life she had carefully contrived, leaving behind a trail of utter devastation. This case brings up questions that aren't easily answered, and almost two decades later it's still difficult to determine the truth. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case of Krista Worthington. This case takes us to Truro, Massachusetts located on the northern tip of Cape Cod. The town is considered a summer vacation hotspot with under 2,000 year-round residents. Truro's population swells to nearly 10 times that amount from Memorial Day through Labor Day. During the winter months, it can look like a ghost town. Seasonal businesses are shuttered and residents hibernate indoors to dodge the winter chill. Permanent residents tend to recognize one another easily and have intermingled lives. Krista's family has deep ties to Truro. Generations of Worthingtons have resided in the seaside town, with connections to one of the most prominent families in the Hamptons. Krista was born into affluence, but chose to pave her own path. Krista Halsey-Worthington was born in the Boston suburb of Brookline on December 23, 1956. She was the only child of Christopher and Gloria Worthington. Krista inherited her artistic mother's creative spirit. Her father Christopher, who everyone called Toppy, had a lucrative career as a lawyer The Harvard graduate had a private practice before working as a civil prosecutor for the state attorney general's office for nearly 20 years. While Toppy was a good provider, he didn't have the closest relationship with his daughter. During Krista's formative years, he was barely home. He either stayed late at work or went out with one of his many paramours. When Toppy was around, he drank heavily. At the same time, Krista enjoyed the luxuries of a wealthy upbringing. Her childhood home in Hingham provided picturesque views of Boston Harbor. Her summer breaks were always spent in Truro, carrying on a tradition Krista's ancestors started back in 1905. Krista made a lot of happy memories in Truro. With its ample beaches, opportunities for outdoor recreation, seaside views, and just-caught seafood restaurants. It felt like a beach lover's paradise. After graduating from Hingham High in 1973, Krista pursued a degree in literature at Vassar College. When she graduated in 1977, Krista was still deciding what to do with her life. Her next venture was in fashion as a freelance writer. She submitted an editorial to Cosmopolitan magazine and caught her first lucky break when it was published. An editor recognized her talent and soon hired her as a staff writer. Fairchild Media, which remains one of the most influential publishers of fashion trade magazines, took note of Krista's work. When she was offered the position of accessories editor at Fairchild's Women's Wear Daily, Krista gleefully accepted and relocated to New York. This new role presented a wealth of opportunities. The international publisher had offices in London, Los Angeles, Paris, and Milan. As reported by New York Magazine in 1983, Krista was selected by Fairchild to work as a fashion reporter at their W Magazine bureau in Paris. Almost overnight, Krista was extended invitations to exclusive parties where she mingled with industry icons like Yves Saint Laurent and Thierry Mugler. By interviewing highly regarded designers, Krista earned the respect of her peers. From the mid to late 1980s, she was asked to step in as acting bureau chief at the Paris office of W. But her enviable success in fashion journalism wasn't all smooth sailing. In 1988, she was passed over for long-term tenure as W's bureau chief. The position was instead given to Dennis Thim, a promotions executive at the now defunct M Magazine. An unnamed former colleague said to New York Magazine, Krista was devastated, but that was just the way it was at W. It's always been a boys club. After the rejection, Krista spent some time in London, before returning to New York. She continued to work as a freelancer, writing pieces for Elle, Harper's Bazaar, and the New York Times. In the early 1990s, Krista co-authored several style books in a series titled Chic Simple that continues to be celebrated for its timeless fashion highlights. Turning 40 completely altered Krista's goals for the future. By then, she'd already grown wary of the frenetic lifestyle that accompanied upper-tier fashion journalism. She craved stability and more profound romantic connections. So far, all Krista seemed to manage in between impending deadlines were flash-in-the-pan relationships. Krista's close friend, Malik Kalin, commented about that time to New York Magazine, saying, She was disgusted over the feral New York media scene and its interest in trashy culture and celebrity. She was trying to point her life in a more serious intellectual direction, in a personal and professional way. In 1995, Krista wrote an article for Harper's Magazine about longing for motherhood at age 40. As quoted by the Herald News, Krista concluded, There is at the moment no father for a child of mine, no husband for me, and what if there never is?" Two years later, Krista made the life-changing decision to leave New York City and move to Truro. To many who knew her, opting out of a trend-spotting metropolis in exchange for a quiet life by the sea seemed like a drastic change, but close friends understood this was just the next chapter in Krista's unpredictable life. In the late 90s, Krista learned her mother Gloria was dying of late-stage cancer. Living in Truro meant she'd be around a 90-minute drive from her parents in Hingham, instead of several hours away in New York. Krista settled into her family's four-bedroom cottage overlooking Marshland along Truro's Pamet River. During this time, Krista began pursuing motherhood more intently. Doctors had told her she was no longer fertile, so exploring every avenue became her focus. She visited a sperm bank, researched the adoption process, and briefly joined a local group for single mothers. Less than a year after moving to Truro, she became acquainted with 51-year-old fisherman, Tony Jacket. When they met, Tony was working a short walk away from Krista's cottage. A commercial fisherman by trade, Tony was forced to take a leave of absence when a storm in nearby Provincetown gutted his 45 foot dragger. Truro's harbor master took pity on Tony, providing him with part time summer work until he could afford a new sailing vessel. So it was fate that Tony happened to be in Truro when Krista took up residency there. He recalled his early interactions with her to CBS News, saying, She was someone very different from the people that I knew. She was mysterious, enigmatic, somewhat of a loner. I could tell that there was an attraction. You know, ultimately, I ended up over at her house having a cup of tea, and one thing leads to another. The caveat Tony was married. He'd been with his wife Susan for nearly 30 years, and they had four children together. Tony also had two stepchildren, making him a father of six. Krista and Tony's involvement turned into an affair lasting nearly two years. He was honest with her about his family situation, and in turn, Krista shared her desire to become a mother. It isn't clear how Krista and Tony felt about one another— Tony told the Herald News, there were no I love yous. In her words, she said, we'll use each other. But Oxygen reports, Krista wrote in her diary, Tony became tender and we were made new spellbound. I love him. It's hard to say if Krista envisioned a future with Tony, but they saw each other every chance they got. Since several doctors had told Krista she couldn't conceive naturally, she and Tony never used protection during their sexual encounters. It came as a complete shock when Krista learned she was pregnant in August of 1998. Tony panicked and abruptly ended the affair. With or without his involvement, Krista was going to have this baby. Her greatest wish was being fulfilled, and she was committed to seeing it through. In May of 1999, just four days after her own mother passed away, Krista finally became a mother herself. She decided to name her beautiful baby girl, Ava. Krista's father, Toppy, seemed no more interested in being a grandfather than he'd been in being a father. After losing his wife, Gloria, Toppy sold the Hingham home from Krista's childhood and moved into a two-bedroom condo in Weymouth. Krista's relationship with her father seemed to worsen without Gloria serving as an intermediary. New conflicts emerged over money and land. Most recently, an aunt had sold off two parcels of Florida land Krista believed were her property. Toppy also seemed to be spending a lot of money lately, though not on his new granddaughter. Mysteriously, the 72-year-old had started giving financial support to a 29-year-old heroin addict and former sex worker named Elizabeth Porter. After months of prying, Krista got him to admit he was paying rent on her Quincy apartment and covering her medical bills. Krista would later speculate this was a sexual arrangement, though the Boston Globe cites rumors of Elizabeth being a secret daughter of Toppy's. Regardless of the particulars, Krista was upset and disturbed by her father's newfound friend. According to New York Magazine, she looked into having Toppy declared legally incompetent so she could take charge of his finances, but it never came to fruition. The stress of being a new mother for the first time was amplified by town gossip over Ava's paternity. The affair between her and Tony had become an open secret that was met with fervent disapproval. Krista was made to feel like a social pariah, and she mostly kept to herself. She'd taken for granted the relative anonymity of densely populated New York. Here in small-town Massachusetts, there was little privacy. Krista had a new man enter her life in the fall of 1999. 45-year-old Tim Arnold, was a divorced father of two and children's book illustrator, who was sensitive, easy-going, and well-read. They got along well and began dating when Ava was only a few months old. Luckily, Tim was great with kids and he grew fond of Krista's baby girl. The new relationship helped to distract Krista from woes precipitated by her father and Truro residents. Tim appreciated Krista's nurturing tendencies especially since he suffers from a rare brain disease that affects his balance. As his condition worsened, Tim was forced to resign from his job as a driver for the Truro Council on Aging. Krista invited him to move in with her and Ava in early 2000. Their cohabitation only lasted four months before Krista broke things off. It was a cordial breakup that simmered into a solid friendship. Krista couldn't think of a better outcome. Though she was fiercely independent, Tim was a source of valuable emotional support when Krista needed a sounding board. As a single mom, Krista had very little time to write. Her friends worried about how she'd support herself and Ava. As reported by the Herald-News, Krista's only stable source of income was a monthly check of $1,700 from a family trust fund. Occasionally, she picked up money from freelance gigs, working feverishly while Ava napped. Somehow, she'd keep them afloat, though Krista grew increasingly frustrated over her predicament. Her friend, Steve Radlauer, told New York Magazine, it wasn't that Krista felt the world owed her a living but she did feel that there was enough money around with her name on it, that she didn't need to struggle with stupid articles that she didn't want to write. It was infuriating to know her father was holding the family purse strings while at the same time, giving away his money to a stranger. Steve, Tim and other friends urged Krista to reach out to Tony for child support. By then, Tony had been hired as shellfish constable of Truro and Provincetown, making a decent wage to enforce local fishing regulations. Since Krista was intent on making it as a single parent, she refused to ask for money. However, she did reach out to Tony asking if he could add Ava as a dependent on his health insurance policy. He agreed and Krista tacked on another more loaded request. According to New York Magazine, Krista asked Tony to tell his wife about Ava by the time she turned two. When Krista's daughter was old enough to ask about her father, she wanted to be prepared with an honest answer. Tony complied. The most awkward conversation imaginable happened sometime in the spring of 2001, Susan Jacket was understandably furious to learn of her husband's infidelity and the subsequent child he fathered. For over a week, there were vicious arguments, with Susan threatening to throw Tony out several times. Once her temper cooled, Susan decided she wanted to work on their marriage. Over time, she gradually accepted what happened and even accompanied Tony on visits to see Krista and Ava. Susan grew fond of Ava, which came as a surprise to everyone, and a huge relief to Krista. A sense of harmony seemed to arise out of an unusual circumstance. In December of 2001, Krista and Ava even exchanged Christmas gifts with the jackets. If only the feelings of accord had lasted, the months ahead would usher the community into a living nightmare. TikTok has become my go-to place for almost everything from entertainment to education. Although great information is available online nowadays, it can be hard to distinguish which advice is real and which is phony. With so many so-called experts giving questionable advice, you can easily tumble down a TikTok rabbit hole trying to find the answers to your questions, especially when it comes to medical advice. There are much better ways to get the answers you want and the care you deserve from trusted professionals. ZocDoc can help you find expert doctors and medical professionals that specialize in the care you need and deliver the type of experience you want. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun no more doctor roulette or scouring the internet for questionable reviews with zocdoc you have a trusted guide to connect you with your favorite doctor you haven't met yet millions of people use zocdoc's free app to find and book a doctor in their neighborhood who's patient reviewed and fits their needs and schedule just right so next time you're about to doom scroll through tiktok trying to find out the cause of your symptoms instead just open up your zocdoc app and find a doctor who can actually help you. Go to zocdoc.com/murderish and download the Zocdoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's zocdoc.com/murderish. Zocdoc.com/murderish. Are you tired of battling through the dreaded pre-period week or struggling with menopause symptoms? It's time to reclaim control with estro control. When I'm not feeling like myself, I'm not able to show up as my best self for my family, my friends, or my podcast team. At around 4.15 p.m. on January 6, 2002, Tim Arnold, Krista's ex-boyfriend, asked his elderly father to drop him off at Krista's. A recent brain surgery left Tim with debilitating blurred vision and it was no longer safe for him to drive. That Sunday afternoon, he was dropping off a flashlight he'd borrowed from Krista. The first sign that anything was amiss was a stack of unopened newspapers sitting on Krista's driveway. Like many other neighboring homes, it was a long dirt road decorated with clamshells. Tim knocked at the front door repeatedly, but there was no answer. Krista was a true homebody ever since she'd moved to Truro, so he found it unlikely that she wasn't home. He walked around the cottage's perimeter, thinking maybe she was in the yard with Ava. But when Tim reached a side door leading to the kitchen, He noticed it was cracked open. He called out to Krista but heard nothing, besides an eerie silence. As he entered the house, Tim spotted Krista. She was sprawled on the floor near the kitchen and lying in a large puddle of brownish-red blood, her nightgown hitched up and exposing her lower half. He gasped in disbelief at the sight of little Ava clinging to her mother's lifeless body And trying to nurse the two-year-old knew Tim well he babysat Ava regularly even after he and Krista had broken up she recognized him immediately and according to the New York magazine she told Tim mommy fell down to his horror Krista's blood was smeared on the toddler's face and hands he wondered how long she'd been like this deeply traumatized and left to fend for herself. Tim frantically searched for a phone, but couldn't find one amongst the clutter. He scooped up Ava and ran through the woods toward his father's house to call 911. Tim echoed what the little girl told him, Krista may have fallen, and he informed the dispatcher she seemed to be deceased. First responders, one of which happened to be Krista's cousin, Jan Worthington, Quickly arrived at the scene. According to ABC News, Jan worked as a member of Truro's rescue squad and as a dispatcher for the sheriff's department. Jan immediately rushed over to Krista's house and examined her for any signs of life. But it was too late Krista had no pulse. At first glance, there were signs that she'd been beaten and viciously stabbed. As reported by the press record, A knife had been shoved into Krista's chest so forcefully, the blade left a nick on the plank floor under her body. But there was no knife in sight. Detectives scouted the entire house to see if Krista's killer was still inside. Once the area was cleared, investigators began documenting what they found. There were clear signs of forced entry. The lower half of the back door was splintered suggesting it had been kicked in and the deadbolt had been ripped out. A few of Krista's personal belongings, including women's eyeglasses, a pair of socks, and house keys, sat on the ground between the house and her car. In addition to parallel drag marks seen on the driveway, it was evident Krista had been caught by surprise and savagely attacked. There were clues that she had fought for her life, As reported by the Cape Cod Times, traces of blood were found under Krista's fingernails and short blades of grass were tangled in her hair. Back inside, investigators set their sights on who appeared to be the only witness, Krista's daughter, Ava. Unsurprisingly, they weren't able to get any viable information from the two-year-old. But there was a decent amount of evidence to log. Looking around the house, detectives noticed tiny red handprints that marked Ava's movements from room to room. According to Oxygen, there were several indications the child had tried to comfort herself. A sippy cup sat upside down on the floor and the contents of a box of Cheerios were strewn across the kitchen. In a loving gesture that mimicked the behavior of a caregiver, it seemed Ava had tried to clean the blood from her mother's face with a small towel. After being examined by emergency personnel, Ava was determined to be physically unharmed. She was cranky, starving, and had a pretty awful diaper rash. But she hadn't been the target of whoever had done this to her mother. The full extent of psychological trauma Ava suffered is unknown. Fortunately, she wasn't orphaned. Krista had made arrangements in case of an emergency. Three months earlier, she'd asked a close friend and her husband to be Ava's guardian if anything terrible ever happened. Krista had known Amira Chase since high school. According to the LA Times, Krista admired the way Amira and her husband Cliff were raising their own four children, so she knew Ava would be in good hands. Now that Krista was gone, Amira and Cliff welcomed Ava into their home. As the toddler struggled to understand what was going on, investigators set to work on solving her mother's homicide. Forensic evidence was the starting point of the investigation. Chief medical examiner at the time, Dr. James Weiner, was assisted in the autopsy by pathologist Dr. Henry Nields. They determined Krista's death was caused by a stab wound to the chest. A knife blade had pierced her left lung before exiting through her back. In an autopsy report cited by the Cape Cod Times, Dr. Weiner also noted contusions to the victim's nose and chest, abrasions on her face, hands, arms, and legs, and internal hemorrhaging indicative of blunt force trauma based on the body's rate of decomposition. The medical examiner surmised Krista had been deceased for two days before she was found. Krista's body was swabbed from head to toe for potential DNA evidence. A rape kit revealed the presence of semen, though there were no signs of sexual trauma. These initial findings deeply puzzled detectives. Recognizing the gravity of this crime, Truro officers called in state police and consulted behavioral specialists with the FBI. Massachusetts state troopers Christopher Mason and William Burke led the murder investigation. They identified a few people in Krista's life who may have wished her harm. At the top of the list was Tony Jacket, the man whose illicit affair with the victim had produced a child. Over the course of multiple interviews, Detectives learned his annual salary was under $40,000. They wondered whether Tony was compelled to kill his former mistress for her wealth. According to the Hartford Current, Krista Worthington's estate was valued at $700,000, or $1.2 million when adjusted for inflation. There was also $500,000 in a family trust fund. Ava would inherit Krista's fortune when she came of age, so money seemed like a solid potential motive for Tony. At a February 2002 hearing, Tony was accused of pursuing custody of Ava for the sole purpose of financial gain. He was also forced to take a paternity test. The judge ended up granting full custody to Krista's friend, Amira, since Tony was still a person of interest in Krista's murder. Detectives wondered if the couple wanted Krista out of the way so Ava could be integrated into the jacket family. In interviews, they were told about Susan's eventual acceptance of the affair and the amicable relationship with both Ava and her mother. Tony told detectives he'd been with his wife and kids on the weekend Krista was last seen. Susan confirmed this alibi. Tony's DNA swab also did not match DNA retrieved from the victim's body. They both passed polygraphs and were cleared as suspects. Tony's former son-in-law, Keith Amato, was also named as a person of interest. He only met Krista a handful of times, when Tony and Susan had her come by with Ava. They had also crossed paths in late June of 2001, while Krista and her daughter were taking a walk in her neighborhood. Keith had asked if he could use Krista's outdoor shower, and she kindly agreed. Keith's interview raised a few red flags. He had a criminal past. A 1980s felony cocaine conviction had led to no jail time thanks to his parents' wealth. He also happened to drive a black van, which witnesses reported seeing near Krista's home around the time she was killed. But he too was absolved of wrongdoing when his alibi was confirmed. Keith had been juggling shifts at two jobs when the crime was committed. Detectives then shifted their focus to Tim Arnold, the shunned ex who discovered Krista's body. Tim insisted that his physical handicaps should automatically clear him, but detectives pointed out how he had carried Ava through the woods. In interviewing Tim, it was difficult to identify a motive. Sure, he and Krista had their spats during and after their relationship, but they still cared for one another. And even if Tim did have any lingering resentment toward Krista, he loved Ava too much to make her an orphan. A polygraph and DNA comparison proved he wasn't involved in the crime. Up next on the list of potential suspects was Krista's father, Toppy, and the woman in his life, Elizabeth Porter. It was no secret that Krista didn't support their arrangement. Detectives reviewed Toppy's credit and debit card activity and learned he made withdrawals of $2,000 to $3,000 a month with an estimated sum of $140,000. All that money went straight to Elizabeth. Toppy thought he was providing much-needed financial assistance to someone who was trying to turn her life around. He had no idea Elizabeth secretly had a live-in boyfriend who shared the apartment, or that he was supporting their 25 bags a day heroin habit. A look into Elizabeth's past spoke to her long-term struggle with addiction. There was a 1999 heroin conviction with an additional charge tacked on for violating her probation. Krista's opposition made her a threat to the cash flow supporting Elizabeth's drug use. Perhaps Elizabeth and her boyfriend were desperate enough to kill. Elizabeth swore to detectives that she had never met Krista. Toppy had offered to introduce them on several occasions, but Elizabeth always refused. She thought meeting someone who already didn't like her would be too awkward. Elizabeth failed a polygraph, which she blamed on being dope sick. Even though circumstances made her a suspicious figure in Krista's world, there was no forensic evidence linking her to the homicide. Detectives pivoted to Toppy. He exhibited erratic behavior after finding out his daughter had been murdered. According to author Peter Manso, instead of rushing to Truro, he had driven Elizabeth back to her apartment, then stopped off in Weymouth to feed his cats. However, a polygraph and DNA sample revealed he had not been involved in Krista's death the list of likely culprits had been exhausted. Investigators then cast a wider net, interviewing friends, former colleagues, distant relatives, and anyone else who'd known Krista. By the fall of 2002, detectives entertained the idea that her attacker may have been an acquaintance or a complete stranger. They interviewed parents whose children were enrolled in the same music class as Ava talked to employees at local spots Krista frequented, and dug into her dating history. Anyone in town was a potential suspect at that point. State police tried to cover all their bases by questioning people throughout New England. Months without any conclusive leads turned into a year. Residents' anxieties mingled with impatience over the case going unsolved. This crime marked the first Truro murder in 30 years. It was definitely the biggest case in Cape Cod in recent memory. And yet, no matter how many working hours or angles they explored, detectives were no closer to tracking down Krista's killer. The early 2003 release of the book, Invisible Eden, A Story of Love and Murder on Cape Cod brought a fresh wave of scandal. Author and Emerson College writing professor Maria Fluke cast Krista in a deeply unfavorable light, laying bare her privileged upbringing and capricious dating life for the masses to judge. Supplementing controversy, the narrative included direct quotes from Barnstable County DA Michael O'Keefe, who made disparaging remarks about the victim. As reported by the Milford Daily News, he described Krista... As an equal opportunity employer, she'd fuck the husbands of her female friends, the butcher or the banker. It goes without saying, the slut-shaming she was asking for it implication of this quote brought the DA under fire. To Krista's loved ones, it seemed like a major paradox to have the lead investigator speak ill of her. After all, he was supposed to fight for justice, not criticize a victim who wasn't around to defend herself. But sensationalism can mean dollar signs. All the public scrutiny attracted curious readers. Its notoriety landed Invisible Eden on the New York Times bestseller list. A few days after the book release, O'Keefe publicly disclosed suspicions Krista had been in an intimate relationship gone horribly wrong in the months leading up to her death. Her friend, Steve Radlauer reacted to the Boston Globe. I think it would be an anomaly if she was going out with someone for any point of time and keeping it secret. If it is a mystery man, that in itself is kind of odd. It's very sparsely populated in Truro and there are virtually no strangers in the winter. Steve had visited Krista a few weeks before she was found dead and she hadn't mentioned anyone new in her life. He was as confused about who could have done this as anyone else. Krista hadn't mentioned a new love interest in her diary either, where she wrote her most intimate thoughts. If O'Keefe's theory was the investigation's new angle, it didn't make much sense. At the same press conference, O'Keefe also announced a $25,000 reward for any information connected to the crime. The amount was raised by Krista's family and friends, in hopes of motivating someone to come forward. Unfortunately, another year passed, and then another. The story may have started to fade from headlines, but it never faded from local memory. There was a weight in the outer Cape air, a tension that haunted every breeze as Krista lay buried, but not in peace. Her killer was still out there. The other day, my assistant Alexis came into the studio and she was so excited to tell me that she just adopted another cat. We love sharing stories about our fur babies, so I couldn't wait to see a picture of her new kitty. Obviously, we want nothing more than for our pets to be healthy and happy, but we don't always know whether they are actually healthy. We do our best to monitor our pet's health, but it's kind of a guessing game. This is just one reason why Alexis raves about Pretty Litter. She's been able to say goodbye to the guesswork and say hello to happier, healthier cats. I know what you're thinking. Who's that passionate about cat litter? Trust me, I didn't get it either. Until she shared something that I've never heard of in a cat litter. She said pretty litter changes color to help monitor early signs of potential illness in her cats, including urinary tract infections and kidney issues. She also says it really gives her peace of mind to know where her cat's health stands and if something's wrong, she'll be able to catch it early. The color-changing technology is really cool and different, but I was also impressed when Alexis shared that Pretty Litter completely eliminated the cat bathroom smell in her apartment. Pretty Litter's ultra-absorbent crystals trap odor instantly, so you don't have to worry about the smell. Pretty Litter's super light crystal base also minimizes mess and dust, and it lasts up to a month. This means less scooping and fewer trips to the garbage can. In fact, you can also get fewer trips to the store, because Pretty Litter ships free straight to your doorstep in a small, lightweight bag. Pretty Litter helps keep Alexis's cats healthy and keeps odors down. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as we do. Go to prettylitter.com slash murderish to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com slash murderish to save 20%. Prettylitter.com slash murderish. Nearly three years to the day since Krista was found brutally murdered, state investigators made what the New York Times referred to as an unusual last-ditch move. They say desperate times call for desperate measures and mounting public pressure created desperation. Investigators gathered in town on January 7th of 2005, asking all male residents in Truro to provide DNA samples. In a dutiful effort to catch the evasive perpetrator, hundreds of men complied to have their cheeks swabbed. Yet others thought the effort was a violation of their civil liberties. According to the Cape Cod Times, samples from local men were compared with DNA swabs from the victim's right breast. In addition, the rape kit collected right after Krista's 2002 death was finally tested. According to Oxygen, a backlog had delayed testing for several years. Even with the semen sample processed, finding a match felt like looking for a needle in a haystack. Miraculously, In early April of 2005, a match was identified, and it was someone detectives had spoken with before. Detectives had interviewed Chris McCowan twice before. According to the Boston Globe, the first time was in April of 2002, when detectives engaged in routine conversations with anyone who might have ever crossed paths with Krista. Chris, A muscular, six-foot-tall African-American man in his early 30s was friendly and cooperative. Chris's race would come into play later in the investigation. Chris told detectives he worked as a garbage collector for the Cape Cod Disposal Company. According to author Peter Manso, Chris's trash route stretched 35 miles from Provincetown up north to the town of Dennis. He said Krista Worthington's house was on his usual route, but he'd never interacted with her. Chris was interviewed for a second time in March of 2004. He wasn't deemed a high-level suspect then, but investigators had started to test male residents' DNA more aggressively. Again, Chris was agreeable and he submitted to a cheek swab. A third interview with Chris presented a major tonal shift from previous rounds of questioning. State detectives had done their research. Chris's past indiscretions didn't exactly make him look good. If his life seemed at all carefree in his early 30s, it was in stark contrast to his early life. Christopher M. McCowan was born in Oklahoma in 1971 to an unmarried 17-year-old mother and absentee father. At just four months old, he suffered a catastrophic head injury and was diagnosed with epilepsy. His young mother wasn't equipped to raise a child with special needs. So Chris was placed in the custody of his paternal grandmother. She was affectionate and strict, offering Chris structure during his formative years. As he got older, Chris often got into trouble at school. At age 15, His grandmother decided he was too much of a handful and shipped him off to Key West, Florida. Chris moved in with his father, Roy, who offered little to no parental supervision. The teenage boy got into drugs, both using and dealing, which set him on a bad track. From 1993 to 1998, Chris was imprisoned on burglary and auto theft convictions. A parole violation, in which he was caught with drug paraphernalia, got him sent back a few months later. When he was released again, Chris was determined to remain a free man. He decided to give himself a second chance at life, moving to Cape Cod in late 1998. Chris found work around Truro and Provincetown, where his strong physique came in handy. He was a bouncer at a popular Northeastern bar. He collected trash at a bakery, and he was employed by two different moving companies. But trouble seemed to follow him up north. As reported by the Boston Globe, Chris was arrested in May of 1999 for trying to break into a former girlfriend's car. He'd pulled her car door open as she drove away, shattering a window. Charges were dismissed, but a court order stated that Chris had to attend counseling and abstain from alcohol and drug use. Chris's most recent brush with law enforcement was in February of 2004, when he threatened to kill the mother of one of his children. The woman had filed a restraining order. In fact, investigators learned Chris had at least four restraining orders issued against him from multiple Cape Cod women. Suddenly, it didn't seem so far-fetched to think he had something to do with Krista's murder. When pressed about his whereabouts on the night of January 4th, 2002, detectives noticed his story kept changing. Hours of prying eventually led to a confession. According to the Boston Globe, Chris told Officer Mason, fine, I had sex with her. Chris told detectives he'd been out with Jeremy Frazier, a 23-year-old white guy he bonded with over drugs. Chris claimed they had drinks at the juice bar, where a rap contest was being hosted, and then they made their way to Krista's residence between 12.30 and 1 a.m., according to the Boston Globe. Chris initially told detectives that Jeremy wanted to rob Krista. They knocked at the door, and when Krista answered, she seemed startled but invited them in. As Jeremy searched the home for valuables, Chris had sex with Krista on the living room floor. They tried to make a quick getaway, but Krista chased them outside to confront them about the theft. Chris told detectives, Jeremy punched her repeatedly before dragging her across the driveway, kicking the door in and raping her. 10 minutes later, Jeremy reappeared and then the men fled. In another version Chris offered, Jeremy had beaten the victim to death and he helped drag her body inside. In yet another version of events, Jeremy returned to kill Krista after having gone home. Of course, Jeremy had a different version of events to lay out when he was interviewed. As reported by ABC News, Jeremy later testified that after the rap contest, Chris and another friend accompanied him to a house party. When a fight broke out, the crowd was dismantled by police. Jeremy had decided he was too drunk to drive, so he stayed at a friend's house. He couldn't account for the rest of Chris's night, but Jeremy's other friend confirmed his alibi. Jeremy's DNA was not found anywhere at or near the crime scene, so police concluded he wasn't involved. After years of hard work, Investigators managed to construct a neatly packaged narrative. Chris had raped Krista and then beat her to death. For unknown reasons, testing was not performed on his 2004 DNA sample for over a year. The results were a match. When stacked up together, Jeremy's testimony, combined with Chris's inconsistent statements and his DNA profile matching crime scene evidence, Prosecutors had their case. On April 14, 2005, Chris McCowan was arrested at his rundown Hyenas residence. He faced multiple charges, including first degree murder, aggravated rape, and armed assault. A six hour interview followed, which Chris declined to have recorded. The only documentation of Chris's post-arrest interview is a 27-page report detectives compiled a week later from their notes, according to CBS News. According to the Boston Globe, during that interview, Officer Mason confronted Chris about the DNA match, and he remarked, it could have been me. Chris went on to explain that he and Krista had consensual sex the Thursday before the crime, which was Krista's designated trash pickup day. As quoted by ABC News, Chris said, Being a garbage man, you know, I get to go to everybody's houses and get to talk to them briefly. He said Krista had invited him in to look at a Christmas tree she wanted discarded. One thing led to another and they slept together. This story might have sounded absurd to detectives, but Chris was known for habitual hookups. By interviewing his friends, author Peter Manso learned Chris had sex with a lot of women on his trash route. He considered himself sort of a Cape Cod Casanova. No one would argue against Chris being a womanizer, least of all whichever woman he was living with at any given time. He'd fathered multiple children, a girl and two boys, with three different women. Despite his rampant infidelity, Friends described Chris as easygoing and someone who never disagreed with anybody, as written in the book, Reasonable Doubt. Prosecutors found it fitting that someone with a stormy track record would commit such a violent crime. DA Michael O'Keefe theorized that Chris might have studied the victim's everyday routine, and noticed that Krista lived alone. When asked for a motive, O'Keefe told CBS News he went to this location for the purpose of having sex with this person. That was denied to him, and in a rage, he raped and killed her. The problem was, there was no evidence to support that Chris had committed a murder. Chris's attorney, Bob George, was certain that police bias had tainted the investigation. He said to CBS News, a person of Chris McCowan's race, class, and limited capacities was an easy target. George's counter-argument rested heavily on discriminatory assumptions and Chris's intellectual disability. According to ABC News, Chris had an IQ of 76, which is only slightly above the threshold of being mentally handicapped, which could directly impact his ability to communicate and comprehend what others say. The Boston Globe reported that Chris admitted to being high on painkillers and marijuana during his arrest and subsequent interrogation. Years later, Chris would tell Investigation Discovery, the police kept on switching everything up, I was so intoxicated off of all of them drugs that I really didn't know what the hell was going on. Following the interview, Chris's cell phone was analyzed, but nothing useful was found. Investigators also tested several belongings boots, pants, a sweater, and leather jacket, all of them tested negative for blood. A search of Chris's residence led to the seizure of several sharp edged weapons. But none of the objects matched abrasions on Krista's body. A total of nine sets of fingerprints had been pulled from the scene. None of them matched Chris. If Krista willingly slept with him, it was highly possible he'd left behind forensic evidence. That didn't make him a killer, but the presence of his DNA at Krista's house made Chris the most convincing suspect in a town that needed closure to move on. Hey guys, if you're looking for your next binge-worthy podcast and you like your true crime light on the gore, then you should check out our show Moms and Mysteries, a true crime podcast hosted by myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Some of our recent episodes include the separate but equally intriguing murders of brothers Robert and Andrew Kissel, the Valentine's Day murder of professional bodybuilder Ray McNeil, and a story that's close to our hearts about Jared Bridegain, a man who was ambushed and shot to death in front of his two-year-old daughter. Each Tuesday we give our take on a new true crime story, balancing our delivery of facts and levity while still giving the stories the respect they deserve and making you feel like you're a part of our conversation. Moms and Mysteries was formerly known as Moms and Murder, but we still cover both the lesser known and the more familiar stories, and there are over 250 episodes to binge, so you can get started right now. Search Moms and Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and subscribe now so you never miss a new episode. When Truro Police Chief John Thomas announced the arrest, there was an air of pride. Many people close to Chris were surprised by the charges brought against him. His father, Roy McCowan, told ABC News, the single fact of her death, that somebody hated her so much that they stabbed the knife all the way through her body and stuck it in the floor. That's rage. Chris being a lover, that wasn't the kind of hate that he had. David Nichols, a friend who met Chris when he was a bouncer at Easton Bar, said to the Cape Cod Times, I was wondering if they had the right guy. He didn't seem the type. As far as defense attorney Bob George was concerned, no physical evidence had been found to prove his client had either beat the victim or held the knife. The defense attorney considered a much more likely scenario Maybe authorities had been so intent on closing the case, they arrested someone who was likely to get them a conviction. A jury would ultimately decide if Chris McCowan was the kind of person who would kill a mother in front of her young daughter. At a pretrial hearing, Chris pleaded not guilty to all three sets of charges. The impending media frenzy two days later overwhelmed the tiny one-room courthouse. The highly anticipated trial began on October 25, 2006, at Barnstable Superior Court, with Judge Gary Nickerson presiding. Assistant DA Robert Welsh III opened by telling jurors he would prove the defendant raped and killed Krista Worthington, and he acted alone. The state's case relied on physical evidence and Chris's confession graphic crime scene photos help jurors grasp the brutality of the crime. In opening statements, defense attorney Bob George cited overzealous police tactics and a botched investigation. He highlighted Chris's impaired state during his post-arrest interview. Bob's approach was to highlight for jurors just how much room for doubt there was when it came to Chris's guilt. At one point, Bob asked the mostly white courtroom to set aside any racial biases they might harbor. As quoted by CBS News, he asked the jury to consider, if you had the same body of evidence and Johnny Whitebread was home for the holidays from college and was from an affluent family on the Cape and he was not black, the same body of evidence, he wouldn't have been charged prosecutors focused on something more tangible, forensic science. Two crime scene techs took the stand to present evidence retrieved from Krista's house. Dr. Henry Nields testified about the autopsy findings in place of chief medical examiner Weiner due to illness. Dr. Nields' testimony created uncertainty over the rape charge. He said he couldn't be sure a sexual assault had taken place since there were no signs of forced intercourse. This meant Chris may have been truthful about his intimacy with the victim being consensual. Bob George cast heavy criticism on how police had handled the investigation, from the carelessness of first responders to the approach used in his client's post-arrest interview. He argued that more than a dozen emergency workers trampled through the crime scene Potentially compromising key evidence. Witnesses for the defense supported the argument. As reported by the Cape Cod Times, paramedic Jeffrey Francis admitted that he and a colleague moved Krista's body during a resuscitation attempt and then covered the victim with a blanket for decency reasons. Prosecutors countered, saying that any disruption to the evidence was minimal and did not detract from the fact that McCowan's DNA was still found on the victim, according to the Boston Globe. Several individuals formerly deemed persons of interest testified for the defense. Among them was Keith Amato, Tony Jacket's former son-in-law and casual acquaintance of the victim. He detailed his experience during a police interview, saying how state troopers had accused him of having an affair questioned his sexuality, threatened him with prison, and applied so much pressure during questioning that he vomited after, according to the Boston Globe. As quoted by the Cape Cod Times, Keith testified, It got very loud. Trooper Mons slammed his hands on the table and said, This is a murder investigation. If we so choose, we will turn your life inside out. Keith said, He felt coerced into saying that he had lied in previous interviews, even though he'd been truthful, a tactic that left him very confused and dizzy. The defense then presented the question of false confession. The defendant's impaired mental ability would have been further compromised while under the influence of drugs and in a hostile environment. Dr. Eric Brown, a prominent forensic pathologist, testified. Having an IQ of 78 and being subjected to that kind of stressful, prolonged interview makes him susceptible to manipulation, as quoted by the Boston Globe. Beyond allegations of misconduct, defense attorneys punched holes in the validity of forensic evidence. DNA examiner Christine Lemire revealed that DNA from three unidentified males were found under the victim's fingernails. As reported by ABC News, prosecutors affirmed the perpetrator had to have been Chris McCowan, based on his own statements to police and the victim's presumed time of death. Investigators' proposed timeline set the murder at 24 to 36 hours before Krista's body was discovered. The accused had placed himself at or around Krista's residence about 39 hours before Tim Arnold found her. But two pivotal elements were absent from the court case. No murder weapon was ever found, and there was no clear motive. Chris had shown through past behavior that he responded to rejection with a shrug, moving quickly on to the next rendezvous in his garbage route without a fuss. So the theory that this crime was a violent response to being rejected didn't seem likely. Jeremy Frazier took the stand to offer his account of the night Chris allegedly committed the crime. He was a witness for the prosecution, saying that he didn't know how the defendant's night concluded. That said, according to ABC News, under cross-examination, Jeremy revealed how his memory of the night's events were hazy, and that state police had fed him some information. Throughout the trial, defense lawyer Bob George highlighted assumptions investigators made based on his client's race. During closing arguments, he asked the jury to consider the strength of the state's case and set aside their own biases when deciding on a verdict. As quoted by CBS, Bob George said about the case, it's based on an assumption, a false assumption, that a Vassar-educated, 46-year-old world-traveling wealthy heiress could not possibly have had consensual sex with a black, uneducated, troubled garbage man. The state rested its case by saying that Chris lied to protect himself and tried to pin the killing on his friend. As quoted by the Milford Daily News, Assistant DA Robert Welsh insisted, even if Chris was white, this defendant would be faced with the same evidence and I'd still be asking you to convict him. Jury deliberations lasted a total of eight days. Out of 12 jurors, only two were African-American. On day six of reviewing what was presented at trial, Judge Nickerson unexpectedly dismissed a juror. The person thrown off the panel was a white woman whose boyfriend was arrested in an unrelated crime. According to CBS, during a phone call, the juror had criticized police and expressed concern about her fellow jurors being biased. An alternate juror was summoned toward the tail end of deliberation. But eight days in, jurors informed the judge they were deadlocked. In an effort to avoid a mistrial, Judge Nickerson pressured the panel to reach a decision. On November 16, 2006, the jury announced their decision, guilty on all charges. Chris McCowan was visibly shaken by this verdict. Defense attorney Bob George told ABC News, I went into closing arguments believing I had, at the very least, a case of reasonable doubt. After the verdict was delivered, McCowan, of course, was devastated, and he started to cry. A sentencing hearing was held hours later, with Chris speaking before the courtroom for the first time. As reported by CBS News, his statement read, "'This case is a very horrendous case. I feel sorry for the victim's family, her daughter and her. I have never meant for this to ever take place. But, Your Honor,' All I can say is that I am an innocent man. Judge Nickerson sentenced Chris McCowan to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. His attorney, Bob George, explained to ABC News that in Massachusetts, unlike other states, conviction of first-degree murder is life without parole. You die in prison. This outcome made the case even more tragic for some. Who weren't sure justice had really been served in the days that followed chris mccowan's sentencing calls poured in from the jury three members of the jury panel reached out to defense attorney bob george alleging they heard racist remarks Bob informed Judge Nickerson that racial bias may have impacted the verdict, and he requested a new trial. In a gesture of good faith, the judge held post-trial hearings. Jury members who claimed the defendant had not been given a fair trial because of his race got to testify. Several months later, Judge Nickerson declared that no evidence of racial discrimination was uncovered. Bob George filed an appeal which was denied. Chris hired a new lawyer, Gary Pelletier, who filed four motions for a new trial. They were all denied, even a 2015 motion that made it up to the state Supreme Judicial Court. Now 52 years old, Chris remains incarcerated in Bridgewater, Massachusetts at the Old Colony Correctional Center. He regrets not testifying at trial to tell his story, though he broke his silence in the fall of 2017 by speaking to several news outlets. He maintains his innocence to this day. Ava Worthington is now in college. Over the years, she has stayed in touch with the Jackets, her biological father's family. For a few years after her mother's death, Tim Arnold would visit her, but their communication eventually tapered off. In an interview with CBS News, Tim commiserated about Ava having to grow up without her mother by saying, that's the enduring tragedy of the whole thing. This case continues to mystify people, who can't help but wonder if this is a wrongful conviction rooted in racial prejudice. If that's the case, the vicious killer may still be walking free today. Others believe that Chris likely reached his breaking point and lashed out at a vulnerable new mother, Your help is needed with a missing person's case. 31-year-old Sierra J. Chapman has been missing since December 29, 2002. The petite African-American woman is described as 5'5'' five five tall and weighing around 115 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. Sierra was last seen outside her Autumn Woods Drive apartment in Trotwood, Ohio in the early morning hours of December 27th. The only development in the search for Sierra was the discovery of her 2014 Cadillac SRX SUV in nearby Dayton. Dayton police suspect foul play and are offering a $10,000 reward for any information regarding Sierra's disappearance. Tips on the case should be called into the FBI field office in Cincinnati at 513-421-4310. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Make sure you're following me on Instagram and TikTok at Jamieonair. That's J-A-M-I on air on Instagram and TikTok. If you'd rather listen to the podcast with no interruptions, you can do so by signing up for Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon. As a patron, you can get access to bonus content, ad-free episodes, and other really cool perks. To sign up for Murderish Behind the Mic, visit Murderish.com or just go to Patreon.com and search for Murderish there. If you need more podcasts to listen to, I host another true crime podcast called Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago, a woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. It's a wild story that even has ties to the Michael Jackson scandal. You can subscribe to Dirty Money Moves wherever you're listening right now. There are a bunch of episodes to binge. If you enjoy Murderish, consider leaving the show a positive rating and review in any podcast app. The sound design and audio editing for this episode was done by Trevin of Live Laugh Larceny Podcast. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. And remember... Listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Seeking the truth never gets old.